This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Out front next, outmaneuvered. Republicans are fuming over the border bill crumbling before our eyes. The Democrats claiming that they're the ones who can actually fix the border. Plus a quote, scab and an insurrectionist. Those are the words of a top Teamster executive who refused to meet with Trump today. That executive is my guest. And breaking news, a major military shakeup. Sources tell CNN that Ukraine's top general is out. And tonight we hear exclusively from the man who may replace him. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, outmaneuvered. That is how a Republican senator is describing what is happening to his party on the border bill that right now is essentially dead on arrival in, a, in the House, a border bill that would affect this entire country. Democrats are seeing an opportunity and they're wasting no time tonight in piling on. It's clear that when it comes to border security, Democrats are for the fix and Republicans are for the fiction. Yeah, we, we may have owned it before, but now you own it. Now you own it because we can fix it. Now you don't want to fix it. So now you guys own it. Well, Swalwell and Moskowitz, you see there, are not alone. Democrat Tom Swazi is running in one of the closest watched House races. He says, quote, it's a better issue to run on now than it was 10 days ago. And that is because of comments like this one from House Speaker Mike Johnson just today. From what we've heard, this so-called deal does include, the, does not include, sorry, does not include from we've, what we've heard, uh, these transformational policy changes that are needed to actually stop the border catastrophe. He keeps emphasizing the word what he's heard. We understand his office is being briefed, but obviously he doesn't want to convey that. He, he, he wants to say from what we've heard, here's one fact. Johnson has not actually seen the final bill. Nobody has. The one thing that he does know for sure, that he is hearing loud and clear, is Trump lobbying the House Republicans to reject the bill because it would be a, quote, win for the radical left Democrats. And that, that collusion between Trump and House Republicans and the House Speaker is why Republican senators are seething. To me, this looks like we got outmaneuvered. People have to show courage. If you're afraid, you got to read the bill. I mean, don't be ignorant. Read the bill. You can't think that this is about political advantage for one candidate or another. Republicans have talked about this for a long time. I'm just telling them to read the bill and make their own decision on it. Uh, Langford, uh, obviously very conservative, uh, the top Republican leading the negotiations, uh, trying to maintain his calm there despite deep frustration. Republicans know the Democrats are going to flip the script on immigration and they're going to run towards it and not against it if they can't pass this bill. Miguel Marquez is out front. He is live in Douglastown, New York, where he's covering this high profile special election. Border security is now front and center. This is a must win race uh, when you look at control of the House, Miguel. And the Democrat, Tom Squazzi, who we just heard from, is feeling very confident on this issue. Yeah, we're seeing that exact dynamic here in this race. And Tom Swazi certainly want to, wants to take this office back. He is running as a centrist, trying to take on Republican issues, whether it's crime or taxes or immigration, saying he's a centrist that can get things done. 
but in this suburban district of New York City, immigration is a massive, massive issue. It's very unclear who will end up on top in this special election. Immigration and the fight over how to deal with it, taking center stage in the first special election of 2024. Tom Swazi will work with both parties to close illegal immigration routes. Tom Swazi, a centrist Democrat trying to turn the tables on Republicans and convince voters that he has the right plan for solving the immigration crisis. My opponent in this race won't even give a solution. She says there's a problem. I said, yeah, I agree there's a problem. I have a solution. His opponent, Mozzie Pillup, a Nassau County legislator, says Swazi, who represented the district for three terms, then ran unsuccessfully for New York governor, is part of the problem. Tom Swasey voted with Biden every single time. Biden and the Democrats let in 10 million migrants. And that she has the solutions voters are looking for. We have to keep building the wall. At the same time, we have to increase the number of officers who will be uh, there to secure the border. And we have to be more tight when it comes to asylum seeker. Despite a bipartisan immigration bill currently being hammered out in the Senate, House Republicans at the urging of Donald Trump have said they won't consider it. Former President Trump is saying, oh no, I don't want to give Biden a win. Well, that's what's wrong with politics. As Democrats blame Republicans for blocking a solution to help solve the crisis, Republicans are pummeling Democrats for creating the problem. Thanks to Biden's Swazi open border policy, Millions of migrants have crossed the southern border. The race in suburban New York City, a purple district, largely Jewish, registered Democrats slightly outnumbering Republicans, but GOP candidates have performed better here in recent years. The big issues, Israel, cost of living, abortion and crime, but maybe none bigger in the closing weeks than worries over immigration and how to deal with it. So early voting starts this Saturday. Election day is on the 13th. And whoever wins this race, it will send a massive, strong signal throughout the country to districts everywhere like this about what we might expect in November. Aaron. Miguel, thank you very much. And I want to go now to the Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell. And Congressman, I appreciate your time tonight. So, you know, you're Seeing this, you're seeing the importance of this in this one district in New York, which happens to be an incredibly crucial one right now. Do you think this is now a winning issue for Swazi and other Democrats when maybe a month or two ago, you probably wouldn't have thought that? Yes, uh, Aaron, and thanks for having me back. Immigration is a winning issue for anybody who wants to get something done. And, and you're seeing the contrast between the two parties. The Republicans are a party of followers and Democrats are showing themselves to be a party of leaders. They want to now just admire the problem, weaponize the problem, and politicize the problem. And, and you saw that with the efforts to impeach the secretary in charge of the border. And even the Wall Street Journal said essentially it'd be insane to throw out the secretary of Homeland Security. That's not going to solve the issue. Solving the issue would work in a bipartisan way uh, to take on the challenge at the border. So there are a number of Democrats who think that the president's actually going too far on immigration in terms of limiting it. Uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Progressive Caucus, told Politico, and I quote her congressman, the president would just do very well to remember it has never worked for Democrats to just take up Republican talking points and think that somehow Republicans are going to turn around and thank us for it. That's just not going to happen. 
And Democratic Congressman Greg Kasar said, and I quote him, it's bad immigration policy. It's bad for our economy. It's not humane. It's bad for Americans. And then I think it's bad politics as well. I don't think that we should be accepting a hostage-taking situation and Trump-like policies as Democrats. Now, that's coming from the left of, of your party, but it does raise a crucial question. You know, there's very clear Democrats and Republicans who are negotiating this bill are calling it the strictest in, in, in this century, the strictest in generations. Is Biden risking going beyond where your party is right now? I, I think he's going right where the American people are. And, and of course, in a negotiation, you're never going to get what you want. But at the great big center of this country believes that somewhere between putting kids in cages, which is inhumane and wrong, and somewhere between an, having an absolute open border, you can have policies where the border is secure, where you have barriers where it makes sense, where you use uh, surveillance and sensor technologies and you surge border patrol agents, that you have a pathway for earned citizenship to meet a lot of our workforce shortages in this country, and that you show compassion to people who are coming here with asylum claims, and you have enough resources through judges to adjudicate the claims that are emeritus and get rid of the ones that are not. That, to me, makes more sense. And the deal led by the second most conservative person in the Senate, James Lankford, yep. working with Democrats, is at least getting us somewhere near that, rather than just, as I said, weaponizing the problem and not wanting to be a part of the solution. So, you know, taking a step back here, obviously there is the bill itself, right? And and uh, as it's being described as the strictest, as you say, pointing being negotiated on the Republican side by one of the most conservative members of the Senate. Um, then there's also the, the laws on the books now, what can be done with what we have. And we hear that argument a lot, right? Enforce what's on the books before you talk about what is needed. The House Speaker Mike Johnson says that Biden can uh, use Section 2112F of the Immigration and Nationality Act to fix the border, uh, which basically gives the president broad authority to restrict immigration. So the key line in it, uh, Congressman reads, whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such a period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens or immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens, any restrictions he may deem appropriate. Now, Congressman, you and I know, everyone knows, President Trump used authority many times. He was challenged in court, including when he used it to ban travel uh, from those five mainly Muslim countries. But in that case, the Supreme Court ruled on Section 2112F uh, that it exudes deference to the president in every clause. So, Congressman, just a very basic question. Right. Why wouldn't President Biden... Yeah. Sure, he'll be challenged in court. Go ahead and try to use this now to stem a quarter million people coming over the border every month. Well, I mean, certainly resources are being surged to the extent that they can. But, but Aaron, the, many of the challenges were also successful in court. And I think the last thing you want is uncertainty day to day on what the situation is at the border. So if you can put it into law with a bipartisan piece of legislation that would let the president stop asylum claims uh, from time to time and put the resources there so that you can restart them, which seems to be the crux of what this deal could be, that gives more certainty to mm -hmm. our process. And, and we should take it rather than just leaving this to the courts. And then next week when it's stayed, it, it's back open again. That to me is just chaos. One party, again, they just want to sabotage the process, throw out the secretary in, in charge of the process, not right. solve the process so that you can which, help Donald Trump in the upcoming election 
and benefit on the chaos. Right. Which, uh, you know, Jonathan Turley, who uh, obviously had 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 represented Trump in the impeachment hearings, at least from a constitutional law perspective, uh, thinks that uh, impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary makes no sense at all and is completely inappropriate. Um, but but there are things out there that don't really still make sense, Congressman. Like, for example, do, does it make sense to you that President Biden has repeatedly asked for fewer immigration detention beds in his annual budget? You know, some people they point to these things as the signals that this administration has sent that the border is open. Yeah, so I, I think anyone who could be a threat to the United States, uh, you know, certainly would want them in a detention bed. And in an ideal world, if someone comes here with an asylum claim, you can process that claim as quickly as possible and return them to their country if they don't meet the standard. But we don't have the resources right now to do that. And I think that's what this deal can mm -hmm. get us toward. But he hasn't and requested even, the resources the in the past, I guess, in yeah. part, is what I'm pointing out, with things like the beds, as an example. Sure. And, and Speaker Johnson has said that he won't take additional you know, resources unless we pass the most extreme draconian mm. bill uh, that they had. Again, I, I think most Americans live in the great big center on this issue, and we're getting closer to finding it. And I just hope my Republican colleagues realize that we can do big things on a complicated issue if we just come together. And that's certainly something, uh, as you point out, Senator Lankford agrees with. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time, Congressman Swalwell. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, and next, a top Teamsters executive today skipping a meeting with former President Trump, a man that he calls an insurrectionist and a scab. But can Trump still score that union's endorsement? Well, that Teamster exec is next. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg says he's sorry to parents who say social media contributed to their children's suicides. But then why is he then denying the link between social media and poor mental health? And Nevada Republicans go to the polls next week. But the fix is already in, it appears, for Trump. We'll show you why in a special report coming up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, a, quote, union buster, scab, and insurrectionist. That's what a top Teamsters executive is calling Trump as the former president meets with the union. 
Trump is trying to get a big endorsement and, and make no mistake, an endorsement from a major union, Teamsters Union, uh, would be would be unprecedented. Vice President uh, at large, John Palmer, who will be my guest in a moment, though refused to attend the union meeting today with Trump. This is just days after Palmer sent a letter to the Teamsters president, Sean O'Brien, where he argued that Trump should not be welcomed by the 1.3 million member union, saying in part, quote, he's a known union buster, scab and insurrectionist. We should never entertain dialogue with a candidate with such an anti-union record. John Palmer is now out front. So, John, uh, you know, we understand this meeting happened today, and I know you chose not to go. Uh, Trump called the meeting, quote, very strong. He sounds very confident that the Teamsters will endorse him. Obviously, your union, 1.3 million Americans are a member of your union. Uh, what is What have you heard uh, about what happened in that meeting today? Well, I saw a list of questions. There were a lot of tough questions asked uh, concerning where he stood and, and, and uh, you know, what he might do in his next term. Um, but my, my sense is, you know, we already know who this man is. Uh, you judge people by the actions that they take, right? Um, and, and all the things that I said, scab, union buster, insurrectionist, are provable beyond a doubt. Uh, you know, he crossed the picket line with the IATSE people. Uh, he hired uh, union busters to staff the Department of Labor, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, which affects us greatly because I'm a, uh, an organizer and, and I've had to deal with the Labor Board. And, uh, um, you know, as far as the insurrection goes, um, you know, we all saw what happened. It, there's folks that want to somehow dress that up as a, as a vacation day for some folks. And um, that's very unfortunate. Do, do you think, though, um, from what you're, you're hearing from your, your peers and your union, your, those of you running the union, do you think Trump really has a chance at getting this endorsement? I, I would say zero. I, I don't believe he does have a chance. Uh, I was disappointed in the the appearance, uh, you know, particularly the press conference that occurred after the the meeting. I, I think it it sends out a sort of you know it was in my letter where I, I suggested that it's a tacit endorsement. Um, you know, he he is not going to do anything for labor. He never has done anything for labor, and frankly, he's not a trustworthy individual. So after the meeting today, and you know, you, you talk about the, the, the when he spoke, but. He was asked about your criticism specifically, and I wanted to play part of that exchange. Here it is. One of the Teamsters executive board members objected to your visit today, calling you a known union buster, scab, and insurrectionist. What's your response yeah, well, to that? They're wrong about that. I, I've dealt with unions for my whole life. I've had a great relationship with unions. So what do you say to that? John, when you've looked at his um, history with, with unions, great relationship with unions, he says. I, I, think, I think we know about uh, Donald Trump's long history and uh, 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 inability to tell the truth. I mean, I just uh, laid out exactly why I said those three things. And uh, uh, he's guilty of all those things. Um, it's, it's fact. You know, a rock is a rock. When you thump on it with your knuckles, your knuckles are going to bleed. Um, so, so I know folks live in information bubbles and and take on different viewpoints, but uh, we all need to need to look for truth. And as leaders, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us to tell the truth to our members. Now, I served in the military. I'm very proud of that service. My whole family did. I also believe that, the, you know, I lost an uncle in Korea uh, who I never knew, but, but people died so we could have the right to disagree. I, I, I'm fine with people having a different viewpoint, but as a leader, it's my responsibility to lay the facts out for folks. And and this isn't for working men and women in general. Let's let's go beyond unions. Uh, everything, you know, the good things that happen with unions 
transfer into the non-union workplace. So, it, so uh, yes, go ahead. So, well, no, no, I, I know, obviously, you know, you made it clear that you don't support Trump, actually, that you do support Biden. But I, I want to ask you something about your union itself, right? And just what's happened in this country in terms of, you know, political shifts, right? 1.3 million members, as I mentioned a moment ago. Our Harry Anton's been going through the numbers and, you know, he's pointed out that the Democratic edge with union voters has declined dramatically, right? In 1948, it was a 62-point edge, 21 points now in 2020. So do you worry that a lot of people in your union simply don't see it this way, that they would be happy to have the union endorse Trump. I, I think it is a cause for concern. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes as, as we rise in the, the ranks of leadership, we, we become disconnected from the membership. And, and as a, you know, as an organizer, a person who, who you know, education is everything. Yep. And, and instead of endorsing somebody or, or, or playing footsie with somebody, who clearly isn't going to work in our best interest, we should be out there talking to our members. The facts are pretty clear uh, as to why this man should not, should not get our endorsement. I'm certain he, will, he won't. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And next, Mark Zuckerberg making a public apology to parents. But right after he said he was sorry, he then said this. The existing body of scientific work has not shown a causal link between using social media and young people having worse mental health outcomes. Okay, well, I mean, sure. Well, a doctor who's long studied the impact of social media on mental health says Zuckerberg is wrong, and of course, anyone's actual experience would indicate that's the case as well. She's my guest next, and Nevada votes next week, but is the contest already rigged for Trump? What do you notice about this ballot? The person I wanted to vote for wasn't on this ballot. Tonight, sorry, not sorry, Meta Chief Mark Zuckerberg, whose company owns Facebook and Instagram, today facing the families of online abuse victims with this message. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? Would you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? All right, that was a stunning moment, and it, it came during a very tense Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on online child safety. So there was that apology, which, of course, was prompted, right, by, uh, prompted. But here's the same hearing and Zuckerberg a few minutes later. Mental health is a complex issue, and the existing body of scientific work has not shown a causal link between using social media and young people having worse mental health outcomes. No causal link. Well, that does fly in the face of, of numerous credible studies at this point. And, well, frankly, it's an insult uh, to those families. Out front now, Dr. Lisa, Dr. Lisa Stroman. She's a clinical psychologist who specializes in technology use. So, Dr. Stroman, you were watching this today. And you said you had to turn off the television during the hearing because it upset you so much. Tell me why. Yeah. 
Thank you, Erin. Uh, you know, I've been in the field and working as a clinical psychologist for over 20 years, and I sit in a room with children and families that have been harmed by social media, and I've spent my career being an advocate on this point. So to hear Mark Zuckerberg stand up and say that there's no causal link means that he has bad advisors because he he is basically trying to turn the scientific community, in my opinion, against himself. He is absolutely and patently lying that he doesn't have evidence that this is actually harming our children. And he has a personnel issue if he doesn't have those people that are in that internal world of his giving him that feedback on a daily basis. So Zuckerberg, you know, in, in denying that link, the causal link between social media use and poor mental health. Um, you know, there's a lot of research on this. Of course, as you're well aware, uh, you know, going through some of it, I mean, there was a study in the American Journal of Epidemiology that found that Facebook use was associated with a decrease in self-reported mental health. Um, and, and, and literally, the, the number, the, you can correlate likes, right, the number of likes with mental health. And then there's this. This is an analysis of CDC data. I know, Dr. Familiar to you, but it shows spikes in feelings of sadness and suicidal thoughts. And you could see that on one line. And um, this, this comes along with the introduction of the various social media platforms. So you can see things uh, out there. What else does the data show that you have looked through in such detail? Well, it's it's always going to be correlational data. And so to his point, he can use the word causal because he knows that we cannot do studies where we put children in front of harmful content and see whether or not it hurts them. So this CDC data shows, that overlay shows the correlate, correlational relationship between when these these products are coming out and the effect that it's having on our teenagers. So when he says that mental health is a complex issue, that was the part that really got to me because it's a simple issue. We're either well or we're unwell and our children are suffering and they're unwell. So it's a simple issue. If if they put the dollars behind actually the services and going upstream and keeping the children off of these platforms, then we wouldn't have to spend billions of dollars that he's putting back into his tech company to create buttons that aren't working anyway. Well, you know, it's actually an amazing thing in that this issue actually has united people from both parties in Congress, uh, which, which pretty much nothing does. Uh, I want to play you actually a bit of an exchange that Zuckerberg had with a Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn. Children are not your priority. Children are your product. Children you see as a way to make money. Obviously, Dodge, you know, it's interesting. Mark Zuckerberg is a parent himself now, so, so he can see this from other perspectives. But from the perspective of his company and how it is run and what they do and how they make money, how they grow, is she right? She's absolutely right. And in fact, if you look at the evidence that's out there, it's really on a child's time on a platform. They're making about $270 per child. And my question to, to the world is, is it worth it? Are we trading in our humanity for dollars in this case? Because our generation of children are never going to grow up well enough, healthy enough, or mindful enough to be able to be contributing into our society if we keep intruding into their minds with this content that's harming them. All right. Dr. Stroman, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Erin. All right. And next, the next major contest in the Republican primary is next week. But here's the thing. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are not even on the same ballot. This definitely smells of rigging the caucus 
on behalf of Donald Trump. Plus, breaking news this hour. Sources telling CNN now that Ukraine's top general is out. And tonight, an exclusive interview with the man who could be his replacement. A seismic shift in the Ukraine war tonight. We'll be back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, rigged for Trump. It's the loaded word, obviously, but it is the accusation against the Republican Party in Nevada, which is running a caucus next week, with Trump as the only major candidate actually, you know, you're allowed to vote for. Well, that's odd, right? Nikki Haley's in the race. And to add to the confusion, the state then is running a separate primary election where Nikki Haley is running, but it actually doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is the caucus because the candidate that wins the caucus, where Trump's the only one on the ballot, gets the 26 delegates. The primary winner gets nothing. So Kyung Law is out front with why a lot of Nevadans are crying foul and saying the Nevada GOP is in Trump's back pocket. It's going to be very confusing for people. I don't understand why we're doing it that way. In Nevada's primary, Republican voters are finding there's something missing. Donald Trump. This is very much like the ballot you just turned in, right? Yeah, exactly. And what do you notice about this ballot? The person I wanted to vote for wasn't on this ballot. So do a lot of people understand what's happening this time in Nevada? I don't think so. I don't. I didn't. Donald J. Trump! At his Nevada rally, former President Donald Trump said, no need for concern, just go to the caucuses. Do the caucus, not the primary. The primary is meaningless. Nevada passed a law in 2021 that switched from caucuses to a primary system that Trump didn't want to run in. So now Trump is participating in the party-run Nevada caucuses on February 8th. Nikki Haley is running in the state-run primary two days earlier. Outside of this Trump rally, his voters were still trying to make sense of the dual system. In Nevada, I think it's going to confuse a lot of people. Only the results of the caucuses award delegates towards nominating the Republican presidential candidate. The state party sets that rule. It's why Trump's campaign is pushing the caucuses. If you're lost, you wouldn't be the only one. We're trying to talk to people about the caucus versus the primary. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion. It is confusing because I got the information, but it does not tell you when to vote. You're looking up the difference between the two? Yeah, uh, yeah like caucus, primary, different stuff like that. I still don't know why he's not on there. You it's do. hypocrisy that you you couldn't cut with a chainsaw. Former Clark County Republican Chairman Chuck Muth voted in the primary, but knows it doesn't matter. I, I believe that they set up the caucus because they wanted to assure that Donald Trump was not embarrassed in Nevada and secured Nevada's uh, vote. This definitely smells of rigging the caucus on behalf of Donald Trump. He's talking about the leadership of his state Republican Party. Some of those leaders just happen to also be criminally indicted by the state for attempting to falsely certify that Trump won Nevada in 2020. He did not win. All six fake electors have pleaded not guilty to felony charges. Michael McDonald, Nevada Republican Party chairman and close Trump ally. And we will deliver you 100% of delegates 
for the state of Nevada to Donald J. Trump. And Jesse Law. That our flag was still there. Clark County Republican chairman, who sang at Trump's last Nevada rally. Last November, we caught up with a caucus roadshow held by Republican Party leaders Jim DeGraffenreid and Jim Hindle. As a party, make sure that we're choosing the most competitive, the most representative candidate to be our nominee. It's completely misguided. Amy Tarkanian, former state GOP chair and lifelong Republican, doesn't buy any of this. What does it mean, though, if you have these indicted fake electors who are also behind pushing this call. How do you trust it? How do you trust it? To me, it comes across as a complete pro-Trump scam. That's it, plain and simple. It's sad and it's, it's disappointing. I think really they've disenfranchised the Republican voter. Since Nevada's Republican primary doesn't award any delegates, the best Nikki Haley can hope for is bragging rights. Donald Trump, he's the only major name left in the caucuses, which will award 26 delegates. Erin? All right, Kyung, thank you very much. And I do want to add that we reached out to the Nevada Republican leadership for comment, and they did not respond to our request. Well, next, Trump's federal January 6th case is on hold. It is now awaiting a key decision from an appeal court. There's a real big question here, though. This was expected to happen quickly. It has taken now almost a month. Why is it taking so long for the judges to rule on whether Trump is immune or not? Former Trump White House lawyer Ty Cobb has a theory. And breaking news, sources tell CNN that Ukraine's military chief has been told he's being fired. It's been side by side with Zelensky since day one, a crucial development in this war, as the man who could replace him sits down exclusively with CNN. All right, growing questions tonight about whether Trump will actually face a criminal trial before the election. It's now been seven weeks since all proceedings were paused in the DOJ election meddling case against Trump. The case halted until a federal appeals court rules on Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity from criminal prosecution. Everyone expected there to be a ruling very quickly here from this uh, court, but three, the three-judge panel has been silent for three weeks, almost certainly delaying the scheduled March 4th trial date. Out front now, Ty Cobb, the former Trump White House lawyer who signed on to an amicus brief filed in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to argue against Trump's claim of immunity. And Ty, we've talked about this. Uh, You'd expected a quick decision after the appeals court. Oral arguments were on January 9th. It is January 31st. They have said nothing. What do you think is happening? So I think uh, the three-week delay is... is um, if, if you just take a step back, uh, given the given the magnitude of the decision involving a former president and an unprecedented constitutional claim, uh, it's not it's not difficult to imagine that the court would take you know three weeks to a month to perfect an opinion. Uh, I, I hope that's what's going on. Um, it is also possible that uh, the court could split two to one, uh, not on whether or not. Trump's arguments are valid because they're clearly invalid and will be rejected. But uh, on on the issue of whether or not uh, the the um, claim should be heard at this time, uh, as you will recall, there was an amicus opinion uh, citing the Middle and Asphalt case that said that um, uh, you know that no interlocutory appeal should be heard uh, pre pre conviction. Uh, the court asked some questions about that early in the hearing. Uh, but then they reverted to the uh, 
famous exchanges uh, with regard to the uh, logical extent of the arguments put forth by Trump's attorney, yeah. ending with uh, the attorney insisting that SEAL Team 6 could kill a political rival uh, <laughs> under certain circumstances. Right. Um, I think, uh, I think the, uh, you know, if this, if this goes through the end of next week without a decision, uh, that's a concern. I think a 2-1 opinion um, uh, invites en banc review, which I think otherwise would be rejected. Uh, that, that would add additional delay. Um, and also a 2-1 opinion would um, make it more likely that the Supreme Court might take this up. My own view, as we've discussed before, um, along with you know several other constitutional scholars, although many people disagree, is that the Supreme Court is unlikely in the, in the event of a strong D.C. Circuit opinion uh, is yeah. unlikely to take this case up pre-conviction. All right. So, so then, when you talk about conviction, right? You have to have the trial, uh, and that doesn't right. even get there. And then, then appeals. Um, but you know, if you look at the timeline, Norm Eisen uh, laid out that how he thought that this could actually end up delaying the beginning of the trial till August. Now, if you do that, there's a you know longstanding kind of DOJ rule, right? That you don't have um, you know public steps that could influence an election within 60 days of an election. James Comey, um, right. you know, could talk about that. Okay, so um, that would put you there. So I guess the question is, do you think it's possible that this case, which was scheduled originally to start on March 4th, could possibly not start at all before the election? No, I believe, I, so do I think that's possible? Yes, I think that's, I think that's very possible. I still think it's 60-40 that the case will go forward in late May or, or June, uh, assuming an opinion within the next week. Um, and, and I do believe that, uh, you know, it is possible to get the trial done, but obviously the appeal would not be completed before Trump, um, if he, should he win, mm. uh, would be uh, inaugurated. And at that point, he will have the ability to order his Justice Department to uh, dismiss the appeal. And, uh, um, you know, uh, this case will be as though it never existed. Uh, he's not going to pardon himself. I'm, it's it's sad to see journalists still insisting that's a possibility because, A, it was never a possibility, and, B, it's unnecessary because all he has to do is direct the Justice Department to dismiss the dismiss the appeals. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the, he's not going to be incarcerated in advance of, uh, of uh, inauguration should he win. I want to ask you, uh, before you go, Ty, uh, Alina Habba, Trump's sure. lawyer who lost the case in the E. Jean Carroll $83 million defamation settlement. Um, he, he, Trump has indicated he's looking for new representation for his appeal. Uh, she represented him, and she said in a recent interview, uh, she talked about that and what it was like working with him. Here's what she said. Winning always helps. He doesn't uh, want anybody on his team representing him that's, you know, going to keep failing, of course. Loyalty, it's something he talks about all the time, but loyalty in not a cryptic mafia way. So he did say he's looking for new representation. Um, you worked for him. What do you, or, you know, for the White House, so you, you, you know him. Um, what do you think about how she's handled the case? I think she's handled it in the mafia way. She's done his bidding. Uh, she's uh, uh, articulated his political narrative of victimization and unfairness in the judicial system and uh, made some outlandish claims, including the conflict claims. And she lost. So she's a loser. Um, I'm not surprised that Trump is looking for um, uh, appellate representation. All right. Well, Ty, thank you very much. I appreciate your time, as always.
My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. All right. See you soon. And next, the breaking news. Ukraine's army chief fired, according to sources. A major development tonight. Next, you'll hear exclusively from the man who could replace him. Breaking news, a major military shakeup. President Zelensky of Ukraine telling his top general, Valery Zeluzhny, that he's being fired, sources are telling CNN. This is an enormous move. It is a seismic move. They have been together since day one, and it comes at a crucial time in the war. A formal announcement is expected by the end of the week. It comes as U.S. aid is on hold. But one person now seen as a potential replacement is a man that Vladimir Putin tried to assassinate 10 separate times. He is just sitting down for an exclusive interview with CNN with our Fred Pleiken, who is out front. With Ukraine facing a Russian onslaught in many frontline areas, Kiev says continued U.S. military aid is more important than ever, Ukraine's military intel chief tells me. Shells are one of the most decisive factors in this war. It's about quantity, not so much the quality as the quantity. Next, there are assault aircraft. These are aircraft of the type that the United States has, like the A-10 Thunderbolt II, and so on. This is what can really help inflict a military defeat. But further military aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance, as Democrats accuse former President Trump of derailing a possible compromise. Budanov says he's not concerned about Trump. He is an experienced person. He has fallen many times and gotten back up again. And this is a very serious trait. To say that he and the Republican Party are lovers of the Russian Federation is complete nonsense. But the Russians are currently on the offensive. On the front lines, we've seen Kiev's forces suffering a severe lack of ammunition, struggling to hold the line. Still, Budanov says he believes the tides will turn and Ukraine will attack. In my opinion, the main events on the battlefield will start happening sometime in the spring or early summer. Vladimir Putin wants Kirill Budanov dead. The Ukrainians say Moscow tried to assassinate him at least 10 times. Recently, Budanov's wife and several bodyguards fell ill after what Kiev says was poisoning by a, quote, heavy metal, but they survived. The military intelligence directorate is said to be behind an increasing number of cross-border attacks targeting key infrastructure inside Russia and the occupied territories. While never claiming responsibility, Budanov tells me Russians can rest assured the war has come to them. I believe that the plan includes all major critical infrastructure facilities and military infrastructure facilities of the Russian Federation. With Ukraine's offensive essentially stagnant, the Kremlin is currently feasting on rumors Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is close to firing his top general Valery Zaluzhny and possibly installing Budanov as his successor, the spy chief Koi. Isn't that something that weakens the country if it appears as though the president and his top general are not on the same page? I am also the head of one of the military agencies. I personally have no conflict with anyone. You know, people are talking about you possibly being the new general. If I was appointed yesterday, would we be meeting? So as you can see there, Aaron, still a lot of uncertainty surrounding that situation with General Valery Zaluzhny. Meanwhile, I also asked Budanov what exactly victory would look like for Ukraine. He said nothing less than taking back all of Ukraine's territories, including Crimea. Aaron. All right. Thank you very much, Fred. And of course, that is exactly what Zelensky says repeatedly. So they are on the same page. Thanks so much for joining us. AC360 starts now.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.